Katie Herzog, what's up? Hey, Jesse. How's it going? Good. You had a little travel adventure recently, didn't you? I did. I went to beautiful tropical Alaska for three days. The sunshine state. Yeah, it was my first vacation, you know, since uh, since COVID started, and we thought, why not go someplace warm? So we went to Alaska in February. This is because your wife's people are from there, right? Right. She's from there, so we went to visit her sister and uh, her sister's new baby. It was very nice. One sort of funny thing happened. So as soon as we got there, we went to this little bakery. And my wife and I were ordering food and we were dressed like we normally do, which is like, you know, like Seattle chic. So we basically look like homeless people. Um, mm-hmm. Lots of like brown denim and, and things like that. And uh, this woman, so we ordered our food and this this woman came out to us to deliver it. And she said, do you always dress so well when you leave the house? <laughs> <laughs> and we just sort of looked at each other like, wow, this is this is what constitutes high fashion in Alaska. Wow. So you would be like a fashion influencer in uh, Alaska. I'm what you call an Anchorage model. Is it true that the uh, mayor of Anchorage is a moose or is that just an ugly stereotype? No, it's true. The anchor is actually moose. And I, I saw him. I saw I saw him. He was eating some uh, some 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 twigs on the side of the road. Nice. Um <laughs> that was a pretty crazy travel story. I feel like I'm. Uh... Okay, wait. I have one. I have one more thing to say. All right, go ahead. So we got a condo in this um, this little like we were going up there to ski. So we, there's this like little ski town in Alaska. There's like only one actual resort in Alaska, so everybody skis backcountry. Um, but there is one resort. So we were staying in this condo, and our comforter in our bedroom was made out of denim. Mm. <laughs> Sorry. What does that mean? The comforter was made out of denim. The actual comforter had like a denim, it was like a duvet. Like jeans, like jeans. Je- jeans, jeans, just made out of oh, jeans. Okay. And then right before we left, I look in the closet and I found another one made out of corduroy. What what podcast is this? This is Blocked and Reported and I'm Katie Herzog. I'm Jesse Single and we have, uh, this is going to shock anyone who's been listening to us lately, but we have some media controversy today. We do. The, the media controversy just continues. It is a giant novella. That is the N-word, novella. <laughs> we also have some Edward controversy. Oh, it's uh, – the news has been picking up lately. Like the, the sort of culture war stuff has not slowed down under Biden. I maintain hope it will eventually, especially when like coronavirus abates. But yeah, it's pretty bad right now. But um, we wanted to start with sort of a correction and an update, right? Right. So last week on the show, we talked about Reply All, the hit podcast that uh, recently went through a racial reckoning of its own during the process of covering the racial reckoning at Bon Appetit magazine. Uh, It was a double, a classic double reckoning. It was. It was a double reckoning. So for most of the show's history, it was hosted by two people, PJ Vogt and Alex Goldman. They had other producers drop in from time to time. But then uh, last year, at the end of last year, at some point, they brought in a third host named Emmanuel Dotsi. So PJ, after this racial reckoning about the racial reckoning, PJ stepped down. Presumably, the show is going to continue with Emmanuel and, and Alex Goldman uh, in the hosting chairs. Yeah, so it might come back. Yeah, we should say that they released a sort of like two-minute thing that uh, it sounds like the show is basically on hiatus now and it remains to be seen when and under what conditions it'll come back. But but yeah, the main precipitating factor was PJ Vote stepping down. Right. And uh, they are not going to be continuing their Bon Appetit series. It was supposed to be four parts. They aired two and then they cut it. So that's a lot of work down the drain. My condolences to everybody involved. So it's it's also half a reckoning. <laughs> and to stop a reckoning halfway through is so unsatisfying. It's just a wreck. <laughs> that's true. Uh, so, uh, so 
during at some point last year, they brought on this third host, Emmanuel Dotsi. I was discussing how the show had sort of shifted to being this sort of fun, light, basically apolitical show about the internet and sort of internet mysteries and internet sub- subculture, and to be much more focused on social justice issues like race in particular. When discussing this, I mentioned one particular segment that A, annoyed me, and B, I thought illustrated this change from sort of silly internet shit to like serious issues happening. Which, by the way, is like something that lots of listeners didn't like. They wanted the show to continue to be this sort of fun, um, escapist internet show. And then it was shifting into this like social justice show. So I said on our show that they had a call in program about the, like, like right around the time of the inauguration. And a caller said that during the inauguration, he was watching the inauguration and a confetti cannon went off. And he thought that it was somebody was trying to shoot Kamala Harris. This annoyed me. It was also wrong. But it wasn't wrong. So a lot of people complained about this. And they said that I was sort of just like taking this, you know, this person of color, like not respecting this person's feelings. What I said on the show was not that it was like the callers. Or what I meant to say was that it wasn't like the callers having this feeling that annoyed me. It was that from my memory of listening to this, the host validated this fear that I thought was frankly, an, an unreasonable fear. Like, there's lots of security. <laughs> I realize that this happened after the riots at the Capitol, but there's lots of security at uh, at, at presidential inaugurations. And I, I think that they probably were safe. Um, so my complaint was that, in my memory, PJ and Alex had sort of validated what I saw as catastrophizing. In that respect, I was wrong, because it wasn't a caller. It was Emmanuel Dotsi who, who made this claim. So in one way, I was wrong. But in another way, I think I was even more right by being wrong. Does that make sense? Because it, was the, it wasn't the caller. It was the, it was the journalist himself who was having this, like, this over-catastrophizing, like, I don't know, ap- apocalyptic feeling when he heard a loud bang. So I think, like, at some point, I was always going to try to sort of throw you under the bus to maintain my own credibility. Um this might be a good time. I think I disagree with you on this. So I, I listened to it. First of all, the episode was a slog, in my view. And I thought like an example of um I, I agree with you. So I will say some some reply all fans do deny this idea that there was a noteworthy shift. They had done some political stuff in the past. Maybe I'll I'll try to find a link to like a subreddit post arguing otherwise. I, I think there was a shift. I think Bon Appetit is an example of that. But so I listened to the intro. It's Emmanuel Zotzi saying that. Um and and PJ and uh, Alex are not on mic to to validate it. So he just says it. And and then I watched the clip and I don't think it's crazy if you're a neurotic person, which I am. Um, I would not have necessarily jumped to white supremacists are trying to kill Kamala Harris. I would have jumped to the tens of millions of people who think the election was stolen are trying to kill Joe Biden. But like I just think in the moment – a confetti cannon going off loudly. I think for a few seconds, I might've thought that too. So I don't know. I didn't think it was that unreasonable, um, but I'll put a correction in the show notes. Uh, but yeah, we just wanted to be be clear about that. Right. To me, I mean, the thing that's that I find annoying about it and problematic about it is that it does continue with this narrative that I think is false, that we live in a country where we are, where white supremacist violence is, you know, is, should be at the top of the list of things to worry about. And I just don't think that the data that we have bears that out. Yeah, I was actually talking about this with friends last night. Uh, you have friends? A friend has a backyard. I know, exactly. One of my rare, like, uh, in-person socialization things recently, but we were talking about, like, the assault on the Capitol. And I was saying, like, this is not a, this is not a popular opinion, especially now. But I, I too, and again, I'm saying this as a Jewish person who definitely has an interest in there not being a lot of white nationalists running around. Um, 
I think sometimes people catastrophize. And I, I even think that after this horrible capital breach, which was a mix of a few like Oathkeeper type and um, militia types, but also just like a lot of schmucks who just walked around in a QAnon shaman. And it was horrible. But yeah, I don't think it's in anyone's interest to think like that's the biggest problem. Largely because I think the bigger problems are a lot more boring. They're like right-wing state legislators making horrible policies. I think that harms a lot more people than political violence because our country still doesn't have a lot of political violence. Right. There's just this narrative spread really quickly, even, you know, during the riot itself, that this was a, a like a white supremacist uprising. It was a white supremacist uprising organized by a black man. Um <laughs> And there were there were a few legit white supremacists sure. there, but just just seeing how quickly this was taken as true that like the main grievance was white supremacists, and I think people do this sort of um, associative property of white supremacy thing, where like they were supporting Trump, Trump is white supremacist, therefore the the event was fundamentally white supremacist, and I, I just I don't think that accurately captures what motivates people who believe in these conspiracy theories. Right. There was a a, a very good interview uh, on Fresh Air yesterday. We'll put a, a link to it in the show notes. Um, Terry Gross interviewed a photographer who was at the Capitol, and he talks about just the the varied groups who were there. So there was not one one group who was at this, they might have all the thing that they might have all had in common was that they were Trump supporters, but they had lots of different reasons to, to be there. Um, and, you know, we just like shouldn't treat people like monoliths, even people who are, you know, storming the Capitol in their American flag bikinis. Which shouldn't be controversial because for a big chunk of 2020, there were peaceful Black Lives Matters protests. And then at some point, the 5% most violent assholes would burn buildings down. It would not be fair to then say the fundamental goal of BLM is burning buildings down. There's obviously different people get attracted to these events. So people basically only give the benefit of the doubt to their own side. Yeah. And the only way to learn all this is to listen to so-called heterodox podcasters like us, the only source of truth. Exactly. Us in the Bible. <laughs> the Bible. I forgot about the Bible. I always do. That's my issue. Um, so yeah, that, I mean, the reply all thing is now like... It seems to be canon that PJ Vote and Sruti Pinamaneni uh, are racist, which I still sort of think the evidence is not in for that. I think I wish we had more information on this. I suspect what happened was a little bit more complicated than some of the narratives floating around. I continue to feel bad for both of them because I think at the moment, whatever else they've done in their impressive careers is just sort of swept away in a moment by one tweet storm. And I'm not comfortable with that. And I don't think people being people should be comfortable with that if you're like a decent, humane person. Um, you mentioned on the last show that you emailed both of them. Uh, did they write you back? They did not, nor did I expect them I'm to. I'm shocked. <laughs> you're, you're, you like, I... <laughs> I emailed them because I generally feel bad for people at the bottom of these dog piles. I'm not sure either of them would defend us in similar circumstances, but that shouldn't be the point, should it? No, I, no, I think that they would, they would probably do the exact opposite of defend us, which is join a pile on if we were in the middle of it. That's why I think it's funny that you emailed them because there was no fucking way that they were going to ever write you back. I think that you did the right thing. Um, no, I emailed them in the hopes that it would make them feel a little bit better. Not, right, I don't, right. I'm not intending to strike up a dialogue. Can you right. imagine if instead of four episodes on Bon Appetit, they'd done a reckoning with our show? Oh, man. The, the, they'd be winning, winning Emmys then. Um, do you have anything else to say on on Reply All? I just find the whole thing very depressing because I did used to love the show and it's just like, this was such a... They just wandered into what really feels like a cell phone here. You'd think that people who have a show about the internet would be uh, more braced of how this was going to end. As I said on Twitter, we are happy to finish 
the test kitchen series. We could we could yes. produce parts three and four. We'll split the profits. It'll be good. I know. I've just been like dying to know if Bon Appetit is racist or not. How are we ever going to find out unless this inv- investigation is concluded? Okay. So the rest of this episode, we're, we're going to talk about this crazy New York Times story about a race meltdown at Smith College because every story is now about race. Not our fault. Um, but first, uh, we want to get into a story about race, about race, <laughs> yet another, yet another media meltdown. Often when I say friend of the pod, I'm being ironic. I, I think it's safe to say Mike Pesca is a genuine friend of the pod. Yeah, I, I consider him, him a friend of the pod. That said, I thoroughly denounce him and think he should never work again. Yeah, Mike, stop listening to this right now. So, uh, Okay, Mike Pesca is a longtime podcaster for Slate. He's the host of The Gist, a show that until recently I was scheduled to promote my book on. This is uh, why it got canceled. Yeah, exactly. Um, so The Gist is a news show that has a lot of interesting people on it. It's a good listen. Mike also does like commentary. He's an old school NPR head. I, you know, I think it's safe to say he's sort of like a traditional liberal in that he probably has thoughts on like free speech and some culture war stuff that are to the right of say the average slate staffer these days while still being seriously left of center you know to me that gives credence to this idea that believing that free speech is a fundamental value that you should fight for is a right wing. is right way yeah i'm like conceding their right. framing so. so let's say like Small L liberal. Yeah, yeah. He he's yes. Um, and until recently, this was probably the most common species in places like Slade and definitely TNR. Yes. Slade and TNR have their have unique histories, like very Michael Kinsley influenced, very heterodox. Slade is increasingly becoming unreadable because those sorts of views are getting driven out in favor of um some good stuff, but a lot of just pablum that is very predictable. I'm not being unfair here, right? Like there's been a noticeable shift. <laughs> yes. Slate, uh, like like Reply All and many other uh, outlets has shifted. Okay. So uh, we'll include a link to this, but there's a story in Defector, which is a subscription site uh, that seems to be doing well, started by Gawker and Deadspin folks, uh, refugees, because, because, okay, so basically, I mean, this is a long, complicated story of its own, but Deadspin sort of imploded because these sort of outside investor types uh, came in and there was fighting with the staff. Massive numbers of people resigned. The site is now staffed by like a bunch of people viewed as scabs by much of the New York media landscape. Um, so a bunch of these people went over and started a site called Defector, where they would all be partial owners, subscription uh, Defector runs a piece by a woman named Kelsey McKinney about how how Mike Pesca has been suspended indefinitely from Slate without pay. And it's very weird because you read the story and it's clear that the precipitating event was not him using or mentioning the N-word, but defending the idea that it's sometimes okay for white people to do it, right? Right. So the headline of this piece Slate podcast host Mike Pesca suspended following internal discussion about use of racial slur. So if you read that without reading the piece, you might think that what Mike Pesca did was use or mention the N-word, the actual N-word. But if you actually read the piece, no, he didn't. So what happened is that there was a, a conversation on Slack and Mike made the exact same point that I made on this podcast two weeks ago that, and lots of other people have made, that there's a difference between use using the N-word, directing it at somebody, and mentioning it within context. 
and that it should not be verboten, it should not be basically a fireable offense for a white person, for this word to emerge from a white person's mouth in a non-derogatory context. Yes. And and the necessary background is that apparently twice in 2019, he had mentioned the word once on his podcast, they subsequently cut it, but it was a similar con- it, Well, it was not it, it wasn't it wasn't ever aired. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So he they'd recorded a segment where he used the word or he mentioned in a, in a discussion of the yes. word. Yes. And then the other time he mentioned in the office was when this is amazing that Slate even considered doing this, but they were doing some sort of uh, package on the internal woke wars in journalism, which I think could have been fascinating. And Christina Cotarucci, is that how you pronounce her name? Yeah, I think so. Christina Cotarucci interviewed Mike Pesca for this this package that subsequently got canned, and he said the word in its entirety in her presence. And she basically said, like, would you say that if I were black? And I think he said he wasn't sure. One or both of these led to an HR complaint for mentioning the word. Again, not using it as a slur, but mentioning it in the context of offensive words. And those prior HR complaints combined with him having a stance similar to ours on the Donald McNeil thing was enough to get him suspended without pay, which unless there's something we're seriously missing here is crazy because the complaints were in 2019. Then two years later, he appears to get suspended without pay just for defending the idea that you that white people can sometimes say this word without it being a punishable offense. Yeah, so Ben Smith at the New York Times reported on this, and according to his reporting, Mike didn't remember the incident with Christina Cotarici. Um, the HR complaint was filed by a producer of his podcast um, after he used it in the context of the like of recording the podcast. Right. Um, Which is a strange thing to like, I don't know, that's just like somebody says something on a podcast and you're and it's cut and then you make an HR complaint about that. I don't know, but Yeah, I mean again, this just gets back to what's been weird about watching this unfold online is like um I can only say use mentioned so many times and I don't mean that as a trump card, but it really was the case that until seemingly 30 seconds ago everyone understood that distinction and now there's like and and it just it seems like people are trying to act like the fact that he mentioned the word in 2019 is like solid evidence he had done something wrong. And I, I don't understand that because, again, there is this principle. Maybe the principle shouldn't be there. Maybe you could argue that this is such a bad word. We should throw out the principle for that word alone, although that would be problematic maybe. But you can't just pretend that like this has always been the way it's been. Right. And there is good evidence of this if you search the N-word for, uh, at Slate.com, um, which requires you typing it out with your fingers. So trigger warning there. Uh, it, cut your fingers off after. <laughs> cut your fingers off after. Definitely make sure there are no fingerprints left on your on your keyboard. Um, so in the archives of Slate.com, this word has been yeah. uh, used on almost 400 posts, including over 10 Last year in 20 fucking 20. And even in, in, in 2006, not that long ago, Christopher Hitchens wrote a piece for Slate called Eschew the Taboo, the Pernicious Effects of Banning Words. And he makes the argument in the pages of Slate that this word should not be banned. Yeah. And I guess you could you could posit some really important, meaningful difference between writing it and saying it. But at a certain point, it sort of seems what like what people are trying to do is 
change standards retroactively to justify this punishment. Right. So I reached out to Don Check, who's the CEO of Slate, and I asked him if all of the current Slate writers who have mentioned the word in the past are going to be uh, suspended as well, or it's just Mike. And surprise, surprise, he did not respond. I'm trying to figure out if that's trollish. Part of me thinks it is, but I can't figure out what what principle. Oh, it's definitely I mean, it's, trollish. It's, I mean, it's it's legit, but it's but like what's the what's the actual reason they would they shouldn't be suspended while Mike should? It's it's because he used his vocal cords to produce it rather than type it out. Is that? But the suspension came. I mean, he said it apparently in 2019. It's 2021, and he's being suspended for it now. I mean, Slack is not an audio app, so he would have, and he didn't write it in Slack anyway. So clearly, the suspension is related to the. Slack conversation where he didn't actually mention or use the word. The part where I feel like I'm going crazy is like, it seems undeniable based on the fact pattern we have that the dude was suspended without pay and the precipitating event was him expressing a widely held opinion about using the word in the context of McNeil, not using it. If if you can get suspended within an organization in part just for expressing an opinion, an opinion that has been expressed by noted white nationalists, Ta-Nehisi Coates and John McWhorter, among others... And and Nicole Hannah Jones. Yeah. Wait. Although, so has she ever? I don't think she's ever said. Yes, she has. Look at this. Okay. So Margaret Sullivan wrote this sort of insane column in response to this, basically arguing, making the point that everybody makes, which is like, this is just white people just want an excuse to to say this word, which is not true in the fucking slightest. It's not about you know. Katie, let's be honest. That's why we launched this podcast. That was the subject yes, of every... Yes. It's not just we're responding to actual big news events. Like every episode before that, all we want to do is yell racial slurs, obviously. Obviously. Uh, unfortunately, we have yet to actually do it on this podcast. Maybe this will be the episode. Um, but but Margaret Sullivan writes the following. Here's the an- obvious answer to this problem. White people should never say the word. Mysteriously, some can't accept that. Next paragraph. Nicole Hannah-Jones, who led the Times prize-winning 1619 project about the role of slavery in American history, put it this way in an interview, quote, people know, and particularly white people know, that this is a word that you don't say unless there's absolutely 100% necessary justifiable reasons to say it. For instance, you are reading a direct quote from someone in a particular circumstances, academic setting, a speech, or something like that. So even Nicole Hannah-Jones acquiesces this point. She says there are some contexts in which a white person it is necessary for a white person to say this word. Right. Yeah, right. I guess she would probably say she's restricting that to reading it directly. But again, it's just hard to come up with the principle that would set apart what Pesca did from someone reading the word out loud. Um, I, I actually had to deal with this uh, with my own book. Oh, really? Yeah. So I finished uh, Monday. We're recording this Friday. Monday, I finished my audiobook. As I'm reading, my eye, you read off this iPad into the mic. I see a few paragraphs down. I'm like, fuck the n-word is racing toward me (laughs) because there's a section of my book where i argue in part that like we overhype implicit bias and we ignore the fact that there's still plenty of explicit bias so there was a there was investigation of the notoriously racist chicago police department and one of the complaints is that officers would call black people that word this happened and as this is coming toward me in the text, I'm like, I I can't say it. And I stopped and I asked my producer, I was like, I'm just not going to say this. I'm going to say an anti-black slur. And she was like, yeah, I think that's a good idea. Which is not, again, this idea that like I missed out on something important by not saying it is silly. I don't care. But I was thinking about what you said, I think, about like it does sort of take away a little bit of the power of how horrible it was that the Chicago Police Department did that. And I could see someone arguing like it, it – 
it takes the bite out of it. And shouldn't we want the bite if we want to explain why these words are so bad? Right. I mean, for my sake, I guess I'm glad that you didn't say the word because I want to continue to be able to make this podcast, including after your audiobook comes out. But as I argued in our show about this, about Don McNeil at the New York Times, who, you know, similar sort of clusterfuck around him, um, I think that peop- that white people actually do have a moral imperative to say this word. I'm not going to say it because I am a fucking P word. But I do think that like we have we are putting so much emphasis on this word that it become it gives it way, way more power than it should have. And it also obfuscates what's actually happening. Saying a racial slur does not have as much power as saying the word itself. Yeah. It was funny because I, I tweeted this, but like Tanahazi Coates's uh quote from I think 2010 was just so sort of common sense. He's like I, I think we can understand that black people understand the difference between the word being used and mentioned. And it, it seems like a common sense point. And it's just interesting that in 2021, the capital A anti-racist stance is to be like, no, it's just so inherently harmful. It just hurts them regardless of the context. And um, I guess what, what, what I find a little bit tokenizing is like the defector story – you know, it quotes Joel Anderson basically giving that version of the like, is it so hard not to say it? Just sort of missing the point because we're not we're not saying white people should go around saying it. We're debating one particular person's punishment, but it's like there's there's disagreement about this. Joel Anderson is allowed to have that stance on it, and I'd hear out his argument as I'd hear anyone else's argument out. But there's clearly even among left of center black thinkers differing views on that, and it feels like certain views get held up as like the black opinion. And I'm not sure that's great. I'm not sure we do a great job like understanding that minority groups in general can have internal disagreements about these things. One of the people who make the strongest argument that the word shouldn't be totally verboten is Randall Kennedy, who is a Harvard law professor and a black man. This is a quote. If the word is being used in a way that is demeaning, if the word is being used in a way that is putting people down, I'm against that. But if the word is being used in some other fashion, then it should be recognized and understood. Jesse, guess where I read that quote? Some white, like Stormfront, Daily Showa? Yeah. Yeah. Slate, July 10th, 2020. (laughs) And yes, this is a, this is a post, um, this is a post by Stefan Fatsis about, uh, there was some like Scrabble was apparently going to, um, going to like, uh, remove slurs from its official lexicon. Stephen Fatsis, uh, did a piece about this. And yes, he does print the title of Randall Kennedy's book, which I will just tell you begins with an N. Um, yeah, I, maybe I would like feel less annoyed by this if people just sort of walk through their thinking more rather than pretending, you know, pretending that we shouldn't be concerned about people being disciplined, um, for something that was routine not too long ago. That whole line of like, why are you so obsessed with this? Why, why are white people just like intent on saying it is such bad faith bullshit that I sort of feel like I'm demeaning the podcast to even respond to it. But the answer is two people got in trouble for it and we disagree with that and we're allowed to respond to news stories. And it's not like they just got, you know, had an HR complaint and had to like go to a an implicit bias training which would be stupid in the first place, but there's a big difference between like, you know, a minor some minor disciplinary act and losing your fucking job. Um one one more thing about this. You know, I think this was inevitable and I don't think it was because Mike mentioned the word because obviously you can mention the word in the pages of Slate. I think this is because of who Mike Pesca is. Yes. Mike is he's a bold thinker. He's very smart. He's I guess I guess heterodox is a, a shitty way to have to put it because he is like somebody who would have been he worked for fucking NPR. He was a sports guy at NPR. Like he is like a, a mainstream thinker. Um 
nothing outside the, the Overton window uh, as we knew it all of like a year ago. But Mike also, you know, he had me um, guest host his show. He had you scheduled as a guest. Um, I think that he he often had uh, people within Slate on his podcast to sort of debate these issues the same way he was probably doing in the Slack channel. And I talked to someone who worked at Slate a while ago, and this person told me, you know, Mike thinks that these are like good faith fun debates to have because that's the type of of journalist Mike is and the kind of person Mike is. He likes to have robust debate. It probably wasn't viewed that way from his colleagues. To his colleagues, this was problematic. And so um, I'm not surprised that they pushed him out. Uh, He also at one point, one of the complaints against him is that he made flippant comments about non-binary pronouns on his podcast. I listened to that episode today, and he's not actually being flippant. He's making sort of um, good faith critiques of the term they as this sort of catch-all pronoun, and his critiques are not based in bigotry. It's based in in semantics. It's difficult to change the meaning of a word when that word is in, in such common use as they, and when the the singular they pronoun is at odds with the, the, the common usage of the term. He doesn't say he doesn't want to use the term they at all. He's, in fact, he says that he'll adopt it if this becomes, you know, widespread. Um, but his point is basically like they is just a poor choice of pronoun. Z would have been better, something that already wasn't established in language. Um, you know, and he brings in he brings in critiques of his own argument. There's nothing really flippant about it. Um, he's a funny guy. I'm sure I'm sure things that he said offended people within Slate, but his perspectives are valid and they're not even out of the mainstream. Yeah, I, I'm hitting paywall issues now, but but like the defector piece by Kelsey McKinney included an anonymous quote just like trashing him basically you know more or less calling him a bigot um he was clearly uh, to suggest politics is not a big part of this is just like insane a lot of these liberal institutions academic media what have you are having internal meltdowns about this stuff and the stories that leak out are like the tip of the iceberg you and i both do i you you still get emails about this stuff right oh yeah it's like a lot of it isn't good and that doesn't mean I'm able to fact check every email or contact form submission I get. But like this stuff is getting really intense. There really is a little bit of a moral panic afoot and a little bit of an attempt to purge thinkers seen as problematic. And there's all sorts of examples of that. I mean, Matt Iglesias wasn't forced out at Fox. He left under his own terms, but his colleagues made it much more difficult for him to do his job there. And um, I mean, he's still, you know, he's still working for the Weeds podcast, but it's undeniable that played a role. And this isn't good. This is going to make these outlets worse. You need people like Mike Pesca around and, and to just reduce who he is to being a bigot because he he made a flippant comment about non-binary pronouns. I mean, I find this pretty disingenuous. I also find it worrisome. I think you and I could not, not that they would hire us at this point, but it would be impossible for us to do our jobs working for one of these places. This whole thing made me so glad that we started this podcast and that we're funded by patrons as opposed to some sort of institution. Um, you know, I'm curious about if Mike will get uh, invited back on NPR. He worked for NPR for years or for public radio for years. Um, and he still is a frequent guest on various programs. And I'm guessing we're not going to hear from him again. However, <laughs> if you search the NPR archives for the N-word, you will find... 30,000 mentions. So they have a lot of archive scrubbing to do with themselves. That would be the most like cowardly bullshit if NPR just blacklisted him now over this. I mean, 
The problem with you know we're going to get to this in the next segment, but the gutlessness of management and decision makers in these institutions is a big part of what's driving this nonsense. Dude, can we can we can we talk for a second just about the most insane line in Margaret Sullivan's piece? Oh my god, I could not believe this. So this is Margaret Sullivan, uh, media critic for the Washington Post, former public editor for the New York Times. She writes the following. It's not hard to believe that any white person who would utter, freely utter or defend the most offensive racial slur in English may well be someone with a history of other problems. <laughs> that, what, why would you be a public defender defending a kid accused of murder if you weren't deep down in favor of murder? That logic, that should not it's have gotten through crazy, a college man. newspaper. I cannot That's believe insane. that is a level of analysis coming out of the Washington fucking post. I, I don't usually do this, but I just like when I tweeted that line, I then like just uh, met, I ad mentioned her. I was like, it seems like you're saying anyone who has any qualms about the way the uh, McNeil or Pesca things have gone down has like some deep down problems. Is that is that really what you're saying? That That's crazy. But I think it speaks to like some of the moral panic afoot. Like she's a middle-aged white woman at a time when um, people are vulnerable. I, you know, I I like, I really hope that people repeating these things that this is not just like a cynical ploy to save their own jobs. Maybe it is. I It would make me feel better if they were actually true believers. Do we really think Margaret Sullivan, who's like a, you know, a, a career in old school journalism, thinks that if you defend someone for, who was fired or forced out or, or suspended without pay, that if you defend them, that means you support what they did or that you have like some skeleton in your closet? She can't honestly believe that right would that be more or less disturbing if she does believe that here's what we're gonna find out margaret sullivan went to a halloween party dressed in blackface (laughs) she is trying the washington post has reporters on it she is trying to change the narrative i think she's a huge racist i don't you know obviously anyone who would defend these sorts of like unfair uh dismissals or force out must be hiding something so the only logical explanation here is she herself is a major racist she's probably a turf too (laughs) <laughs> to swerve. So many radical feminists out there these days. <sighs> Do we have anything else to say on this? It's so dumb. No, let's move on. Jesse, unlike you, I'm not a gourmet pizza chef. I mean, I obviously could be if I wanted to, but my feminist ancestors didn't burn their brows so I could slave away in a kitchen all day. As a liberated woman, I'd rather spend my time doing important work like spreading rumors about you on the internet than cook for my family. And that's why I use Postmates. As a male feminist and an ally to all women, I do think my job is to be barefoot in the pizza kitchen. But occasionally I'm too busy knitting pussy hats and harassing women online for not being good enough feminists to do that cooking. But Postmates makes ordering in easy. And the best part is, with Postmates, there's no human contact required. With the current state of the world in mind, Postmates created no contact deliveries. So now when you order from local restaurants, everything gets left on your doorstep and the app lets you know when it's been delivered. Postmates also offers a pickup option you can use to get takeout from your favorite local eateries. It's so important that we support and uplift what's left of our communities right now, and what better way to do that than by sitting on your ass and ordering food? And Postmates isn't all just burgers and sushi. In fact, you can order everything from pregnancy tests to over-the-counter amphetamines from stores like Walgreens and 7-Eleven. Just download Postmates on iOS or Android, find your favorites, and get anything you want delivered to your front door within the hour. For a limited time, Postmates is giving our listeners $5 off your first five orders for your first seven days. To save $5 on your first five deliveries, download the app and use code BARPOD. That's code BARPOD for $5 off your first five orders when you download the Postmates app or sign up online. Anything you need, anytime you need it, Postmate it. 
All right, Katie. Now that we've discussed uh, a story about race and a story about race, why don't we shift gears and discuss a story about race? You know, what we need more on this podcast is race. Okay. So the latest um, race dust up comes to us from uh, Smith College, an internationally recognized center of lesbianism. I take it you've spent a lot of time there, Katie? <laughs> of course. I was the mascot. <laughs> what is the what is the Smith mascot? A beaver. A beaver. <laughs> um, okay. Smith College. Elite all elite all girls school in uh, Massachusetts. Um, Michael Powell of the New York Times just did a really crazy, well-reported story in the New York Times about what happens when a accusation of racism comes into one of these elite liberal spaces. Right. So, uh, had you heard of this story before this investigation? I'm not sure how familiar I was with it, but why don't I just quickly run down the timeline leading up to uh, to Michael Powell's story? Yeah, sounds good. Okay, so uh, here's what the ACLU said in January 2019. Uh, This past July, uh, I might pronounce this woman's name, but Omuo Kanute was a rising sophomore at Smith College working on campus over the summer to mentor high school students interested in STEM careers. A young black immigrant and the daughter of a single mother, Omuo is exactly the kind of striver colleges like Smith seek to attract. But she felt anything but welcome on that late July afternoon. As she ate in a common room, wearing the unofficial Smithy uniform of athleisure clothing topped with a pink and white Vineyard Vines cap, a college employee decided she looked, quote, out of place, end quote, and called the campus police on her. As uh, as this student wrote online in her own post, all I did was be black. It's outrageous that some people question my being at Smith College and my existence overall as a woman of color. So. Michael Powell's story is basically about what actually happened that day and about how the college responded. And the short version is there is not, in fact, any evidence this was racially motivated. But what's weird is that did not matter to the college at all. Neither the lack of initial evidence, they immediately put the janitor on paid leave, nor the subsequent investigation revealing nothing. The college still like went all in on the idea that it had a major race crisis on its hand and introduce new trainings and committees and bureaucracies. Um, it just it makes it seem like the accusation is all that matters and, and the truth of it doesn't, right? Right. Michael Powell has this has this line on the piece. He writes, the story highlights the tension between a student's deeply felt sense of personal truth and the facts that are at odd with it. So I saw a few people sort of like, sort of like, I don't know, criticizing him for this line. But I think what they're not reading is what's happening b- between the lines, which is like, this is an arch way of saying she was wrong, like either lying or had misinterpreted the situation. Yeah. So it's this classic, like, news writers sometimes have to jump through hoops to sort of editorialize because you're not supposed to really express your opinion. What he's basically saying is that her account of events doesn't match reality. I am curious because the New York Times news writing has taken on this much more, um, I guess, moral clarity, as Wesley Lowry would put it. Like, so that they're much more likely to call out things as just racist. And a news writer will describe utterances that might have some ambiguity as racist. It seems like that only sometimes applies. Like, they did phrase this in sort of a convoluted news writing way. Either way, um, what happened was this woman was a uh, had some sort of summer job, I think, as a teaching assistant. And there was this one building with a common space where she would eat lunch. She was told 
uh, this isn't this isn't a place for students over the summer because there was a summer camp there and they restricted access to it because you you need basically to have a background check to be in contact with these kids, which I think is a pretty common thing. So she had already been told by a cafeteria worker, "Don't eat lunch here." Uh, she ate lunch there. A old janitor with like crappy eyesight saw her, uh, called the campus cop. The campus cop arrives, has a perfectly fine conversation with her. She blows us up into an alleged bias incident. And what I was saying on Twitter is like something I want to repeat here, which is like, I don't really want to put too much of the blame on her. She's like a 19 or 20 year old college student. And a lot of college students are dumb and they overreact to perceived slights or misunderstand them as do all humans, but especially younger ones. But, but it was really the response of the administrators, including the college's president, Kathleen McCartney, who we should add makes more than $500,000 a year. That was the sort of unbelievably shocking part of the story, right? Right. I mean, and just the palpable fear that these staff members have. At some point, they quote a, they quote a, like a facilities management person or someone like that who says, like, you know, there's a rule on campus, like, don't piss off the students if you want to keep your job. I'm, I'm poorly paraphrasing here, but these working class people seem genuinely terrified of the, the students who are paying almost $80,000 a year or twice their income, annual income, um, you know, to, for the privilege of going to this university. Yeah. And look, I, I, this is absolutely a class story because once you are a, an elite college student, you're sort of, you've been accepted into a certain class of people. This particular college student did not come from a wealthy background. Her parents- Well, do, how, do we know that? Um, her parents immigrated from Mali, which is a poor country. I, I would imagine she- She went to a prep school. Oh, she, she went to a $63,000 a year. Yeah, she went to, I looked up her LinkedIn. She went to some place called like the Westchester School in Connecticut that costs $64,000 a year annually. All right. <laughs> There are rich African migrants, right. of course, it, but it said her parents didn't go to college, right. so I assumed. And I, right. So I think that if, if she had been of a working class background, I think this would have made it into the story. I think that makes sense to me. Um, right. I, either way, like the, the real tension, the story is between the way these like facility staff were treated um, and and the way this woman's story was responded to as though it was true, even after the college knew it wasn't. So there are these new trainings instituted. There's what sounds like white fragility stuff imposed on these working class janitors and facilities people who have like are react as negatively as you would expect to these gonzo trainings. Basically, like whatever the students say is true about oppression is true, despite the fact that this is not really. I think it's I I. This is a point I always make. I think it would actually like if you're in a leafy elite liberal arts college in New England, I do think not being white would bring social disadvantages and uh, incidents of discomfort and microaggression. But like the way this school reacted, you would have thought there was like a hate crime. Right. Like you made a point earlier about how you don't think that she is the villain here, that she's that it really is the, you know, the administrators who should stand up and, and be the adults in the room. I completely agree with that. It sounds like the administrators are also sort of terrified of these students. And maybe this is just like the customer is always right, gone too far. Um, someone on Twitter, I don't know his actual name, but Halal Alcoholism wrote this. It's easy to see Canute, um, probably mispronouncing this, as the villain here, but she's also a victim in a sense. If she is unable to interpret being asked why she is somewhere she shouldn't be as anything other than virulent racism, that is a natural consequence of absorbing the current state of race discourse. Um, and I think he's right about that. You know, this is not an isolated incident. You know, we've heard about these things happening at other schools. We've heard about things like this happening at Yale, where somebody uh, gets 
accused of something and then the automatic um, response is to believe the like quote unquote victim. Um, but right, we, we the student has presumably, you know, she went to prep school, she's, she went to Smith, presumably she has absorbed all of these messages that that any um, any perceived slight against a person of color, specifically a black person, is automatic racism. And this is a really unhealthy way for society to function and for individuals to exist in the world. Yeah, yeah. And wh- and whatever the sort of individual effects on a student for feeling that way, um, this did a lot of collateral damage. The story explains that in part because the student very promiscuously charged various facilities people and cafeteria workers with racism. Maybe it was just one cafeteria worker, but a number of people, she would just post their yeah, and their pictures and say they were racist. And then and their pictures. And they got they got harassed. One of them had to leave the school. One had lupus, which is like a stressful medical condition that got exacerbated by this. These are like exactly the sorts of people the left is supposed to be concerned with, working class people. I refer to them as middle class on Twitter. That I should have said working class, but the point is the same. And and I think a lot of people understand that there's elements of the current way we talk about race that will give more weight to someone's evidenceless assertion of racism when there's another explanation and care more about that than about the impact these false accusations can have on people. And sure enough, they interview Powell, quotes someone from the ACLU of Massachusetts who basically says just that, that he thinks – we should care more about this girl's claims and about all the people who are affected by them. Right. As you pointed out on Twitter, the New York Times, a bunch of other outlets reported on her claims initially, credulously, didn't bother to... to Powell, Powell, to his credit, mentioned that early in the piece. So yeah. I was just taking okay. what he said. Um, you know, and, it, and also to the, the credit of the Times, this was published, this investigation was published in the Times. But the initial story, um, which is still like up on the ACLU's website, I believe, is that she was the victim of a racist incident. I think the ACLU's behavior here is so fucking immoral. I think that's partly because the ACLU, once the ACLU gets involved, like the story is really going to blow up and they took her on as, um, I don't know, an official client or like as an advocate for her, but um, they help blow this up. They help do damage to working class facilities and cafeteria workers. You can still go to their website. They, they tout the fact that Smith introduced these reforms as a result of this poor girl's experience. They also, they hurt her. They took this girl's story, which should never have been a national story and wouldn't have been if anyone had fucking fact-checked it, and they just splashed her across their main Facebook feed in front of how many, God knows how many millions of people. They they did harm to her too because they need to push the idea that we're in the midst of a crisis because that makes the money directly. Right. So this also comes at the same time that another former staffer named Jody Shaw, who uh, worked in in like the, the, the dorms in the residential life department, um, resigns from Smith and she accuses school of being a racially hostile workplace, specifically to white people. There's a lot of drama surrounding Jody Shaw. She was uh, as part of some like, I'm not sure if it was beginning of the school year, like orientation, it's a, a part of some like programming. She was going to uh, like student life programming. She had written a rap and she was going to perform it. The school apparently told her not to because of the color of her skin. Um, she's been making YouTube videos talking about what's going on at Smith. Uh, Barry Weiss published her resignation letter in her newsletter recently. We'll link to this. Um, there's, a, there's, there's a whole separate story there that we're not going to go too much into, but there's a lot of shit going on at Smith right now. Yeah, and the programs she was exposed to, which I, I think we know, like people have bad reactions to these trainings because they're 
pernicious and they they just they're terrible i don't know why there's gonna be some big lawsuit at some point that's gonna make these programs not worth doing but those programs were put in place because of this alleged eating while black and right right so uh in one of her youtube videos i'm quoting from michael powell's piece here jody shaw shaw says stop demanding that i admit to white privilege and work on my so-called implicit bias as a condition condition of my continued employment um which does sound like a hostile environment like you have to this is not like you know sexual harassment training where they're just telling you what the law is this is much more ideological um and they're apparently this was a condition of her employment was that she undergo this this sort of implicit bias training. Well, one one thing I love about Powell's story is he points out that um, after this racial incident, which was not a racial incident, all these facilities level people they had to do implicit bias training. Faculty didn't. So so you just put you put more and more on the shoulders of like the people working the hardest for the least money, right? And who probably have you know fewer uh, actual interactions with students and faculty do it's a really enraging story and the other thing as always is like you should want claims of racist behavior taken seriously it sort of gets hard to because like the the gale story is complicated that's the sleeping while black one um and it involves the woman who was accused of racism there has serious mental illness uh as you can see on twitter cuz she will tweet at me sometimes but she she was a victim here and that story was much 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 more complicated than sleeping while black uh Kathy Young did a big ex- like reported exploration of it that's another story where all these outlets just told the most damning version of it without waiting for the facts to come in and this is not a good news environment because like these stories spread very quickly and the debunking never gets to a in this case, there was a debunking in the New York Times, so people will hear about it. But a lot of the time, I think the debunking never gets to the people who believe the original most damning version. Right. And very few of these stories actually get re-reported. Um, so if you're lucky enough to be the villain, uh, the alleged villain and one that, that gets uh, re-reported, you may have your reputation at least partially redeemed, but most of these these stories just uh, continue to exist with the dominant narrative. If, if you're a college president at a top college and you're paid half a million dollars a year to run the school well, and your response to something like this was to cause so much harm to your own employees and to not care about the fact that there's no evidence this was a rate, like, why should you have that job at that pay scale? Like, shouldn't that just be it for her? As a co- I'm not usually a big let's fire people guy, but like if someone fucks up their job that badly, why should they be in that position? I wonder if these employees are unionized. Probably not. A lot of them were were furloughed because of COVID, so they don't clearly don't uh, have that much protection. But um, right. I think there's a lot to the idea. We've <laughs> I'm complimenting our own ideas at this point, but I, we've pointed out on this podcast a lot that there is an unexamined class element to a lot of progressive race discourse, and I think part of the reason this story is seems to be going so viral is it like nicely demonstrates that. <laughs> Man, the dialogue or the the conversation on Twitter around all this, like the Jody Shaw thing, so many people, like blue checkmark journalists, just reducing this to like, why does the white woman need to rap? Why does the white woman have to rap? It w- it was so crazy because it, if you've sort of looked into what like these trainings are and you've read White Fragility or like like you did interviewed someone who went through them, it shouldn't be shocking in 2021 that when people run into these trainings, they're like, what the fuck is it? It is like a cult indoctrination. So to see people who don't actually know what's in these trainings express so much skepticism that anyone could dislike them. Um, the other thing I find disingenuous is like if you're Jody Shaw and you feel like you've been wronged, maybe you have, maybe you haven't, but you want someone to investigate it. You, you're not going to get a fair shake from most progressive media outlets. You're going to go to someone like Barry Weiss. 
And then the fact that Barry Weiss took an interest in the story is treated on its face as evidence it's bullshit. And I don't actually know, like she did post this woman's letter and and the college disagrees about this or that, but it's just like, it's not fair to refuse to look into stories like this. And then when the person goes to a quote unquote heterodox thinker, treat that as proof that it's bullshit. Right. It's not like a Vox reporter. A lot of mainstream outlets are going to take up the Jody Shaw story and treat it with anything other than just like utter derision. I'll never forget all these New York Times people denying that there was anything like the divide Barry Weiss posited between like the woker people and everyone else. But everyone who denied that that existed were exactly the sorts of people who would not like, if you did have concerns about it, you would never talk to those people about it because they were like on Twitter. So opposed to the idea that cancel culture is real, like you should consider who will and won't reach out to you to talk to about a situation like this. Like that, that does your Twitter behavior affects it. Right. It's also very funny to see a lot of journalists uh, express what might be their true class solidarity, which is apparently with the administrators and the prep, sc- the prep school graduates at Smith College and not the actual like fucking janitors. Well, and the prep school kids on the Don McNeil trip, uh, HR, right. they're always, they seem to basically always be reflexively on the side of management whenever there's one of these blow-ups. Right. Like, has journalism always been like this? It seems to be at odds with how things used to be. Well, we've talked about this, but there's reason to think it's getting worse, right? There's fewer entry-level journalism jobs. It's more and more uh, pulled from rich kids. Not that we're from humble backgrounds, but I I think it's getting worse. I think you're much more likely to, like, have 23-year-olds in journalism who who are on management side and HR side whenever, like, you know, uh, racial allegations come up. We need like some more bread and butter, dumb internet stuff that is not has nothing to do with the uh, New York Times and nothing to do with racism. So I'm hoping some stories like that will pop up in the weeks to come. Do you have anything else to say about all this bullshit? No, we'll put links to everything that we talked about in the show notes. Everything. Uh, okay, I'm trying to think of any housekeeping things. Um, for our ten dollar and up patrons, we have a hangout on Friday. Will the episode be up by then anyway? Probably not. Probably not. Well, yeah, right. it might be up by. All right, let's just include us debating whether. <laughs> okay. Also, uh, blocked and reported podcast at gmail dot com. Please continue to rate and review us at uh, Apple Podcasts. Um, please pre order my book, The Quick Fix. We're going to be talking a little bit more about that as the release date approaches, April six. But it would make a very big difference to me if you could pre order that. The numbers required for like a successful pre-order campaign are not big, and you can contribute to that, which I would appreciate. Um, when Katie comes out with a book, which I think she will, don't pre-order that one. Buy another copy of mine. I'm going to write a kid's book called Moose Has Two Mommies, and it's going to be a hit. <laughs> I would read Moose Has Two Mommies. So it's just about how Moose's uh, Judeo-Christian morals are corrupted by having lesbian parents. <laughs> it's going to be about different types of families and how some people prefer dogs. That's fair. Uh, fur babies. Anything else that we... Um, our next Patreon episode is going to be about a fascinating new poll on LGBTQ populations uh, and a subsequent pile-on. <laughs> Wait, we're doing oh, that? Oh, yeah, we're doing I that. Forgot. We're going to do that. We're not going to do... The disappearing lesbian. The disappearing lesbian. And a, uh, a pile-on that um, was a little bit my fault that uh, <laughs> that resulted in Glenn Greenwald's name trending on Twitter for 24 hours. Glenn Greenwald, who people are never mad at, was right. somehow the subject of a pilot. It was very surprising. Very strange. So that'll be our next episode. Um, if you haven't joined the Patreon yet, I highly encourage it. It's very cheap, $5 a month for three, at least three extra episodes and all sorts of other goodies. Uh, you can find us at patreon.com slash blocked and reported. And I got to say, just like uh, picking up on what Margaret Sullivan was writing about, if you don't join the Patreon, 
Look, it's impossible for me to know what's in your heart or what motivates your decision-making. You should consider the possibility you're an anti-Semite. You're either an anti-Semite or you're an anti-anti-Semite. This has been Blotten Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, we in journalism must maintain solidarity against those creepy, dirty, possibly problematic janitors. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, don't say the word, don't write the word, don't think the word, and definitely don't dream the word.